So Valentine's Day is coming up. And let's say for this Valentine's Day, I really wanted to woo Vicky, my wife Vicky, with words. So I tell her to get dressed up real nice and I take her out to a real nice restaurant. And then I open a piece of paper and I read these words to her. Dear Vicky, you are a woman. You have two eyes, two arms, and two legs. You have dark hair and you're of a medium height, five five and a half, and a half that counts. Now, I know my wife well enough that she is most likely going to verbalize, if not certainly think, dude, you better have something better prepared than that. There, more, there better be more gifts coming than that lame writing, which is not poetic at all. But, what if I read this? My love. Had I this cheek to bathe my lips upon? Had I this hand, this hand whose every touch, whose every touch would force the feeler's soul to the oath of loyalty? This object which takes prisoner the wild motion of mine eye, fixing it only here. That's going to be a good night. You see, there are is a certain depth of love that requires a certain type of communication. There's a certain depth of love that requires a certain type of communication. More simply, love demands poetry. Love demands poetry. In Psalm 119, the psalmist is not interested in simply presenting facts, raw facts to us about the Bible. That's not what he's doing here. The psalmist is carefully crafting a poem, like we've been reading and learning about, about his love for God's Word that's ultimately rooted in his love for God Himself. This is a love poem. And this writer is not just in love with ink on a page, we understand. It's what the words on the page represent that has this man so enthralled. This is God's Word by which He lets us know who He is. This is God's invitation and says, I want to get to know you. I'll go first. This is God's Word by which He offers to us astounding forgiveness and a commitment that I'm going to be loyal to you forever. No matter what. This is God's Word by which He pledges no matter what we encounter in the course of our lives, whatever trials, whatever successes, whatever joys, whatever pains, I'm going to go through all of those things with you and I'm never going to leave your side until I finally bring you home to Myself. Ultimately, what the psalmist is rooting his love for is not in God's Word. It's not even in his love for God Himself. What Psalm 19 expresses to us primarily is God's love for the psalmist. God's love for His people. 
God's love for you and God's love for me. That's what this psalm is ultimately about. In this series that we've been going through on spiritual formation, how do we grow as Christians? How do we progress? How do we become more sanctified, more like Jesus as Christians? We cannot approach the series presumptuously. We can't always assume and presume that when we come to our Bibles, we're remembering these truths. We're remembering primarily the truth that God loves us and He's invited us into a relationship with Himself. Bible reading ought to be in our minds an invitation from God every day to come and spend time with Him. Do you read your Bible that way? Do you read your Bible remembering that it's God's invitation to you to come and spend time with a God who loves you in an incredible way? I don't always read my Bible that way. We have to remember, friends, we don't read our Bibles because it's the good Christian thing to do. We don't read our Bibles because the pastors are telling us we should. We don't read our Bibles because it's 2020 and this is just one of many goals that I've set for myself in this calendar year. We read our Bibles because God's invitation to us is I want to come, I want you to come and spend time with me. Are you reading your Bible remembering that truth? I remind us of that because here's what I found. My love for God's Word And my love for God Himself is insufficient to keep me going time and time again to this book. My love for God and my love for God's Word ebbs and flows all the time. Sometimes I really lean in and want to do it, and sometimes I don't. Can you relate to that? So if I'm going to remain motivated in the spiritual disciplines, if I'm going to remain motivated to actually do the things in the Christian life that are going to help me to grow, I've got to root my motivation in some place other than myself. I've got to root it in God's love for me because it's God's love for me that started this whole relationship with Him and His Word to begin with. I've got to root my relationship and my efforts to grow in my Christian faith in God Himself. Does that make sense? We've got to root our spiritual growth, not in our motivation to resolve to read this book, but in God's resolve to love us and to bring us to Himself. And so what I believe Psalm 119 specifically in this stanza calls us to do is to remember. This is a call to remember. Here's why I say this. If you look back at your Bible, in verse 49, you see right away. Remember. Now as we've been learning, we know that the the psalmist is taking one letter of the Hebrew alphabet and he's writing eight lines that all begin with the same letter. We don't quite read this in our Bibles, but that word there, it's a command in verse 49, zakor, that same Hebrew word, in the Hebrew literature, the root word is usually three syllables, we'll say. That same root is repeated three times. At first, it's a command, remember, in verse 49. Then in verse 52, in my Bible, it says, when I think, same word, the carity, same root, remember. And then again, in verse 55, I remember your name. Remember, remember, remember. If we were a Hebrew reader, we'd be hearing that three times 
in eight short verses. It's a call to remember. The psalmist is calling on God to remember, and he's calling on himself to remember, and so by implication, he's calling you and I to remember. So let's consider both of those things. First, he calls on God to remember. Remember your word to your servant, he says in verse 49. Now that initially strikes me as being a bit odd. Like, does God really need us to remind him to do certain things? Is God absent-minded? Is he forgetful? Like, what's the deal with that? Why is this guy telling God to remember something? God knows all things perfectly. He doesn't forget anything. So what is this? Well, he's telling God to remember because his experience of God, what he hopes for from God, the things that he knows to be true about God and God's created world are not lining up with his present experience. They're not aligning. What he knows to be true about God and what God promises and the way God promises to work in the world, specifically as it relates to his people, that's not lining up for him. He goes on to say that he's afflicted. Verse 50. Apparently there's evil people, insolent, Proud, arrogant people who constantly are mocking and deriding him. So here we have probably an Israelite person, sometimes after the exile, trying to make sense of a life that's really, really tough right now. We, we can relate to that. Do you ever have an experience that you walk through when your knowledge of God and theories of, of who God is and how he's created things to work that doesn't seem to be lining up with what you're currently experiencing. We go through that all the time. Garden variety stuff, deep, deep pains in life. Our experience of God and what we believe to be true, what we expect and hope for in our lives is not always the case. We're trying to make sense of a life that is very hard. My sister and brother-in-law, friends of theirs, family members of theirs, are dealing with the loss of a 10-year-old boy right now. On Monday, he was diagnosed with the flu. On Wednesday, he was hospitalized. On Friday, he died. 10 years old. And at more than one occasion, People are crying and weeping in the hospital room saying things like, where's God in this? A God of love allows this? That 10-year-old boy should be at home with his parents sleeping right now. He's gone. My understanding of God is not transpiring into the experience of God that I would expect to have and that I hope for. Can you relate to that at all? The psalmist is trying to grapple with the truth of who God is and what he has communicated into his word, in his word with what his life experience is, and the two are not lining up. And so the call to remember, the call to literally commanding God to remember is something like this. God, remember what you have said and would you do it again? I'm not seeing things. I'm not seeing your love. I'm not seeing your power. I'm not seeing your grace and your mercy. I'm not seeing you rule and reign over my life in the way that I would want you to. Please remember what you've said, God, and do it again. Verse 
Now, the Hebrew reader would probably pray things like this. Jehovah, remember when we were suffering and oppressed in Egypt. Remember that. And remember how You promised us. Lord, You promised that You were going to deliver us from our oppressors and You were going to protect us and provide for us. And You did. Remember how when we were just a group of people, not militarily trained at all, but we were wandering through the desert and we encountered armies that were skilled. Og, king of Bashan, and Sihon, the king of the Amorites. Remember when you promised, we're going to get through this. You're going to deliver us. You're going to defeat our enemies for us. And you did? Remember, God, how even though in our disobedience and how we wandered from You in in the wilderness, we rebelled against You, but You still promised. Remember how You promised that You would bring us to a land that we didn't work for. Houses we didn't build. Fruit we never planted. And You would bring us there and You would give us abundant provision and You would give us rest from all our enemies. And You did. Remember that, God. Do it again, please. That's what this psalmist is doing here. Friends, do you read to remember what God has done? Do you pray like this? Here is an invitation from God to cry out and to call on Him to remember ways that He has worked in the past so that He might work those ways again here and now. Remember, O God, and do it again. Please. I need to see it. I need to experience You. I need to understand once again Your great love for Your people. Your great love for me. Because right now, I just cannot see it. Remember. Remember. Remember, O God. So I was trying to do this this week. I don't always read remembering. But I was trying to read, remembering, and so I reread the story of Jesus and the woman at the well, John chapter 4. This is an incredible story. So you have a situation where Jesus is completely bypassing deep seated cultural prejudices and hatred and just social norms. So men of that day would not be in communication with women, especially privately all by themselves. And especially with this particular woman who was known at that day as something like a prostitute. So the only men talking to her by themselves were shady guys who were looking for some favors. Not to mention that there are, there are long, a long-standing history of hatred between Samaritans and Jews. Jesus completely bypasses all of those things. The Bible tells us that he was exhausted because he's been hiking all day with little to no food or water, and he's beat. He's physically exhausted. Now, put yourself in that situation. Have you ever been kind of tapped out, and maybe you feel God's nudge to have you talk to somebody, not even about Jesus, but just like talk? Ask them how they're doing, or just have some type of conversation. In those moments, my first thought is typically they're probably not even interested in spiritual things. 
I'm exhausted, and it's okay for me to kind of be quiet and do my own thing. I'm an introvert after all. Jesus doesn't do that. He initiates the conversation with this woman and plunges in to begin to tell her all the secrets that she's trying to keep hidden from God. And then eventually, he comes to the point where he says to her, the Messiah that you know vaguely about, I'm here to tell you that I'm Him. I've, I've come to give you this everlasting life, this water, this I know what your soul needs that you're not finding in any man. You're not finding in any experience. You're not finding in some form of religiosity that you and your people know. You're going to find it in me and I've come to tell you that I am He. I'm the Christ. Who does that? Could you imagine her perspective? Like, here comes a man. What does he want? And he's a Jew, so I already hate him. Now he tells me all the bad things I've ever done. I know how I would treat that person. So do you. Who are you to tell me all this stuff? That's not what she says. She runs back to all of her friends who really don't like her anyway. She probably has no friends. And says to them, I have met a guy who has told me all the bad things I've ever done. You've got to meet him. When I read that story and remember who Jesus is, I want to know that Jesus. Do you want to read to remember and know Jesus? We read to remember, especially those of us who have been Christians for all our lives maybe, or for many, many years. Trust me when I say, it is easy to get so familiar with Jesus that you read the story at the woman at the well and you already know it. So it just washes over you and you're gone. We have to read to remember. And so I started praying prayers like Jesus. I don't know anybody that's as compassionate and as gracious as you are. I don't know anybody who can take people that are far from God, people that have a form of religiosity, people who have vague notions of who God is, and in a moment transpire them, transform them to their begging you to stay for two days so that they can learn from you. I want to know that. I want to know you afresh. I need to be introduced to you because I've become so familiar with who you are that I don't read to remember anymore. I already have all the answers. Church, we've got to read with fresh eyes. That's what God wants us to do. That's what He's calling us to do when He's calling us to remember. Remember who it is that you're spending time with. Remember the Christ that laid down His life for you so that every morning when you crack this book, It's an invitation from him to say, come, come and spend time with me. I love you. I want to spend time with you. We read to remember. First, the psalmist calls on God to remember. And really, by calling on God and rehearsing the things that God is doing, he's calling himself to remember. But then he directly starts to talk about his remembrance. And when he thinks about and remembers what God's Word has said, His rules from of old, and the promises that God has made, several effects take place. Like God's Word has several effects on the one who's remembering it. We see them right here. In verse 52, he's comforted. So for at least a moment, his grief is 
alleviated. He's comforted by the promises that God's Word gives to him. He's experiencing in verse 53 this hot indignation. This, this righteous anger is rising up. He's red hot. But he's not mad at people because of how they've treated him wrongly. He's upset because God's Word is being neglected. So you see what's happening here. God's Word is having this effect on him that he's more concerned about God and God's glory and the honor that God is due than he is even about his own personal offenses. That's the effect that the Word is having on him. He's compelled to sing in verse 54. So apparently, even in the midst of his trial and persecutions, he's got some joy. He's singing. And then he begins to notice in verse 56 these blessings, God's grace in his life and, and how God has brought good and favor upon him. These are all the effects that God's Word is having. Experiences of consolation. Experiences of joy. Experiences of blessing. Don't you want more of that in your life? I mean, I, I want to have more, more joy. Yes, please. Relief when I'm in stressful situation. Absolutely. Comfort and trial, joy, blessing, awareness of God's favor on my life. Don't you want those things? Those are good things. Well, why don't we experience more of them? Could it be that we're actually more forgetful of God's Word than we are remembering His Word? No doubt one of the reasons why we lack joy and peace and comfort and security and Awareness of God's grace in our lives is that we're neglectful of His Word. Not the only reason, but certainly one of the reasons why we don't experience more of what the psalmist experiences in his life. We're more forgetful than we are remembering. When we traveled to Maine, where my wife's family's from, for Christmas, once again, we listened to one of, probably not, either one of or not the best and our favorite books in the Chronicles of Narnia series, The Silver Chair. If you've never read it, go out and read it. It's an excellent book. And one of the things that happens, so there are two main characters in the book, Eustace and Jill, they're kids. And at the beginning of the book, Jill is sent by Aslan, who's the lion in the story, the Christ figure in this whole series. And the lion, Aslan, sends Jill on a mission. And at the start of this, he gives her four signs. And she has to remember the four signs. And so what Aslan does with Jill is he makes her very patiently, very graciously, keeps her in that place and makes her repeat over and over. No, you got it wrong. Start over. Do it again. He's making her remember the signs verbatim, in order, word for word. And then he commands her, keep on remembering the signs. So then the book starts. And what happens? She forgets. She totally forgets the signs for all kinds of reasons. At times, she's fighting with her friend Eustace, so she overlooks things that she's not supposed to overlook. At other times, they're really weary and worn on this journey, and so all they want is a warm bed and a hot meal. At other times, she's so weighed down with guilt and shame 
She knows she's supposed to be remembering the signs, but she knows that she hasn't. So it's just easy, easier to stop rehearsing the signs than it is to force herself to remember. Because by remembering, she's got to deal with the guilt and the pain of not remembering. Can you relate to that at all? See, that's what Lewis is doing here. In this story, he's painting the picture of all of us. For all kinds of reasons, we forget God's Word. We as Christians claim that this is like our life source. But then it sits on our shelves. We claim this to be the Word of God, and it's so crucial and important for our growth, but we don't spend the kind of time in it that we know that we should. And that's for all kinds of reasons. We love comfort and what's easy. And when the discipline of God's Word feels like hard, well, I don't do hard. I do easy. Just like the kids. Do you ever deal with guilt and with shame? You know you're supposed to be a better Christian, but you're so aware of all the things that you're not doing so that every time you turn to the Bible, you feel like all you ever hear is condemning voices from the Bible. Well, I'm not going to go near a book like that. Before the service started, a woman came up and said, I really feel that on the day, the morning that we're observing the sanctity of human life, that there might be a woman here that feels weighed down with the guilt of an abortion. A man who might feel weighed down. The shame is so crippling. It's just all they can do to even get into the service. There are things that happen in our lives. Experiences that we have in our lives. Troubles that we go through. There's all kinds of reasons why we steer clear of this book. Even though we truly believe that it's God's Word and we can get something from it. How does this end? Listen to how this ends. At the end of the story, they come face to face with Aslan. This is what he says. I have come, said a deep voice behind them. They turned and saw the lion himself, so bright and real and strong that everything else at once began to look pale and shadowy compared with him. And in less time than it takes to breathe, Jill forgot all about the dead king of Narnia and all she could remember was how she had made Eustace fall off the cliff and how she had helped to muff nearly all of the signs. She forgot all the signs that Aslan told her to remember and how she, all she did was snapped and quarreled and fight, fought with him. And she wanted to say, I'm sorry, but she couldn't speak. Then the lion drew them toward him with his eyes and bent down and touched their pale faces with his tongue. And he said, think of that no more. Think of those things no more. I will not always be scolding. You have done the work for which I sent you into Narnia. I need to hear that, don't you? No matter what struggle, what condemnation, what fears, what shame... All that you haven't done, Christ would say to you in the grace of the gospel, think of those things no more. All is forgiven. See, when we're motivated to read our Bibles or do anything that God commands us to do in His Word, if we're motivated by grace, grace is going to be a far better motivator than any self-resolve that you and I could ever conjure up. That's never going to cut it in the end. Motivation by grace by the love of God, specifically the love of God in the Gospel, that's what's to motivate us when we read God's Word or do anything else in the Christian life. 
God's grace and his acceptance, when he looks at us and says, those things that are keeping you from me, those guilty feelings that you have, I've dealt with every single one of them at the cross. Remember those things no more. I've put your sins away from you as far as the east is from the west. I want to spend time with you. I want to enjoy fellowship with you. I've given you this book not as a duty to check off the list, but as an invitation to come and to spend time with me. We read to remember. We read to remember the gospel. Are you remembering, church? Are you remembering the gospel when you come to this book? One of the things that I'm considering doing is even in the morning when I have my devotions, ones in which I choose to have them, having something written down that reminds me of the, the gospel that I'm so prone to forget so that I can see what I'm reading through the lens of who Jesus is and what he's done to save me. We've got to remember. And I so easily forget. When we read to remember, I think things like this begin to emerge. What I did this week as I was preparing to preach is read through Psalm 119 over and over and over and over again. And if I could show you my preaching journal, what you would see is this guy, the writer of this text, is so much more godly than I am. The way that he trusts God in trial the way that he pursues God, the way that he stands on the word, the way he won't relent from obeying it. I mean, his devotion and his spirituality make mine look pathetic. Some of that is very intentional. Because when we pan out and see the book of Psalms for what it truly is meant to be, big picture, it was meant for Israel to picture the ideal Israelite, the ideal worshiper, most often the king, the king of Israel who was a godly man who would lead himself and others into truly loving God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Very, very subtly and not so subtly at points, the Psalms are preparing the readers to look for this godly king. We're not wondering anymore who that is. We read Psalm 119 knowing that Jesus is the ultimate worshiper. He's the one that truly loved God, all heart, soul, strength, and mind. And it's His obedience to God, His not relenting from God, His not backing down to persecutors, His passing through the waters of the judgment on the cross, and His resurrection from the dead. He's the ultimate Israelite. He's the worshiper that we're to model our lives after. And it's His obedience that secures God's blessing in my life and yours. We read remembering the gospel. And so we come to Psalm 119. And we read things like, remember your word, don't forget me. That sounds familiar. God, you've forsaken me on the cross. It seems like you forgot me. Don't forget me, God. He didn't. He raised his son from the dead. We read things like, insolent men utterly deride me, but I don't turn from your law. Who was persecuted like Jesus? Nobody we know. And yet he set his face like a flint. He never backed down from keeping every single commandment his father told him to keep. And when it says that this blessing has fallen to me because I have kept your precepts, it better not be our confidence that I've kept God's rules so therefore his blessing is on my life. If that's our confidence, friends, we have no hope. 
Because if God demands perfect obedience, I only know one person who is perfectly obedient to God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of His keeping of the precepts, now I can be sure, and so can you, that when I'm reading Psalm 119 and I read, the blessing has fallen on me because I've kept your precepts, I'm thinking of Jesus. The blessings of God are secured in my life, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. We read to remember the Gospel. Are you reading to remember the Gospel? That's what I believe God is wanting to help us to see. The call to remember is not to call to remember our love for the Word or our love for God, as important as those things are. The call to remember is not to first say, what Bible app do I need to get on my phone to remind me to read? As good as those things are. It's not what friend can I make my accountability partner so I read the Word more often. As good as those things are. The call to remember is first and foremost, what I need to remember is God's love for me in Jesus Christ because that's primarily what's going to keep me coming back to Him over and over and over again. It's a call to remember His love for us, not our love primarily for Him. See, when we read our Bibles remembering the Gospel, it's a game changer. If we're reading our Bibles and the Word seems boring or it's a chore we have to check off to get to the more important things of life, we've forgotten. We've forgotten who it is that's inviting us to spend time with us and all that He's done to make us His own kids. We read to remember and to remember specifically the Gospel of Christ. Now what if we're not remembering? I read something that was affected it affected me deeply when I was thinking about just where I'm at with the Lord and where I need to grow and where I need to change and my love for God's Word. Matthew Henry was a commentator from a long time ago. He would have been reading from the King James Version. And in verse 50, it says that God's Word quickens us. We don't talk like that anymore. It makes us alive is what my Bible says. But Matthew Henry, in thinking about this quickening of God's Word, he said something like this, if God's Word quickened me when I was dead in sin, it can quicken me when I'm dead in duty. Do you need to be made alive? Do you need your spiritual life to kind of take on new life again? I do. If God used His Word when I was dead in sin and when I was apart from Him, won't He use His Word now to quicken me to love Him the way I should? Yes, He will. If God's Word quickened me to do good when I was backward and opposed to it, like I didn't want to do good and I had no intention of doing good, if God used His Word then to turn us around and to give us new life and to quicken me, then He certainly will quicken me again to do good when I'm cold and indifferent. I need that in my life. God's Word is what does that. It's, it's, remember, it's reading to remember the Gospel and then reading, remembering the Gospel that I come to God's Word and say, God, this relationship I have with You that began with You and Your Word, it began with You. So would You quicken me again as I'm opening the Word again? Would You use it and take it to fuel me that I might love You in response to Your great love for me in Christ? Amen? Let's read our Bibles remembering God's love for us in Christ.